Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of what just might be the hottest new podcast out there, Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kenny. Today's episode is going to be a continuation of the last one. This is the second of a two-part series I'm doing on the Syrian Civil War. If you tuned in last time, we talked about the religious background of the region, the religious background of Islam, the different denominations there, and how that plays into the various alliances that are taking place and, and taking shape in Syria. But today we're going to focus a little bit more on the political side. But first, a little history. So the Syrian Civil War really started in March of 2011. It actually wasn't a civil war at the time. It was a, a protest movement. There were a handful of pro-democracy protests that popped up. Now, mostly these protests were about high unemployment. There was a lack of political freedoms. There was corruption in government that they saw. And so you saw a handful of these protests pop up. But the government starts to crack down on these demonstrators pretty harshly. Uh, in particular, there were a handful of teenagers who were, I think, spray painting some graffiti slogans that were pro-democracy, and they were arrested, and one of the boys actually somehow died in custody. And so these type of severe crackdowns by the government led to more protests, and eventually the government starts to fire on demonstrators. And so this leads to even more, you get this kind of spiral effect, and by July, there are hundreds of thousands of Syrians that are protesting across the country. Now, in kind of a broader context, this was all part of what was called the Arab Spring Movement. Now, the Arab Spring Movement was a series of protests and uprisings across the Middle East. It took place in a variety of countries. It started in Tunisia in late 2010, but it was spread into Libya and Egypt, Yemen, Bahrain. Uh, we also saw demonstrations taking place in a handful of other countries, Morocco, Iraq, Algeria, Lebanon, Jordan. So we start to see this spread out across the region. And the two most important for our purposes are Tunisia and Egypt, because in these cases, the protests were actually successful. They toppled both the presidents of those two countries, Tunisia and Egypt, and this gave hope to a lot of the pro-democracy activists within Syria. But because the government cracked down so heavily, killing demonstrators, I believe they ended up killing hundreds of demonstrators during these protests, this descends into a civil war fairly quickly. And so by 2012, so less than a year later, the fighting has reached Damascus and Aleppo, which are two of the largest cities in Syria. Within a year or so after that, we have 90,000 people dead. Within four years, it was over 250,000. Now we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 to 400,000, including about 100,000 of those being innocent civilians. There's also as many as another 100,000 undocumented deaths, another 50,000 people missing, and that doesn't even include the 1.5 plus million who are left with disabilities, permanent disabilities from the fighting and from the conflict. And so since this descended into war very rapidly, it quickly becomes one of the most devastating conflicts in the world. And as you start to see alliances build in the region as well as externally, it becomes one of the most complicated conflicts that we've seen since the world wars. And it's really become one of the most devastating humanitarian crises that we've seen in a long time, too, also probably since World War II. We have almost 6 million people who have fled the country, mostly going into Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan. About 10% of those have fled to Europe, mostly uh, Serbia, Germany, Sweden. And there's another 6.5 million plus that are within Syria that have been displaced from their homes. So we're talking you know, over was that 11 or 12 million people who have been displaced, about half of those have had to flee the country and another 1.5 million with disabilities and probably close to a half million dead. And because so many people are fleeing the country, we have a pretty large refugee crisis on our hands as well. 
And a lot of countries in the Middle East have said, no, they can't handle this. Europe is starting to see the strain of these of, of this influx of refugees to the point where some countries have actually started to shut down their, their immigrant programs. And unfortunately, this is a conflict that doesn't really seem to be slowing down much. Uh, there ha the average civil war in the world lasts about 10 years, uh, but foreign involvement from you know, foreign partners, foreign alliances tends to extend that further. And this war being so complicated with so many external partners, it's likely to see it go beyond that 10 years. We're only in about year, I think we started year eight recently. We still have a couple years to go to even reach the average. And unfortunately, it just doesn't seem to be slowing down. So the implications here are pretty large and far reaching, not only from a humanitarian standpoint, but also implications for boundaries of the Middle East down the road, the spread of terrorism, the relationship between the Middle East and the rest of the world, especially the West, what political Islam will look like going forward. So let's take a step back and start to look at who the major players are in this conflict. First, we have to touch on the two original parties. So this would be the Syrian government and the Syrian rebels. Uh, let's start with the Syrian government. Uh, so the Syrian government is led by a man named Bashar al-Assad. Now, Bashar al-Assad is a Shia Alawite. And if you listen to the last episode, you know that means that he is a, a minority leader in that country. Most of the country is Sunni, but Bashar al-Assad is, is Shia. And that means that opposing Assad are the rebels. Now, most of the rebels, again, being the, because the population of Syria is mostly Sunni, are Sunni as well. And this is largely built on two groups. You have the Free Syrian Army and you have the Islamic Front. Those are probably the two largest groups of rebels that are fighting. But it's important to understand that there's believed to be as many as a thousand armed opposition groups within Syria. So while the Free Syrian Army and the Islamic Front are the two largest, there are, again, close to a thousand more that are also involved there. Now, because these are, are Sunni, you tend to see Sunni allies pop up with them. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, Jordan... But mostly we talk about them as being the rebels. So those are the two first initial sides. You have Assad and the government of Syria versus the Syrian people and the Syrian rebels. Now, there are kind of two other sides to this, and then that doesn't count all the, all the partners. But the other two sides that need to be discussed are the Islamic State. Now, the Islamic State didn't actually come about until 2013 or 2014, but they became a major player, at least for a little while. Now, I could probably do an entire episode just on ISIS, and I probably will down the road, but the important thing to understand here is that ISIS is an apocalyptic ideology, which means that they believe that the end times is coming very soon, and that they are actually key players in it, which is one of the distinctions between them and Al-Qaeda. They believe that they are part of the group that will bring about the apocalypse. And one of the reasons they got into Syria in the first place is because there is a town in Syria called Dabiq. That's D-A-B-I-Q. And Dabiq is a very important town for the Islamic State ideology. Because Dabiq is supposedly one of the key battlegrounds of the end times. It's actually supposed to be the first big one that kind of kicks off the apocalypse. So when the Syrian civil war broke out... You had ISIS as well as some other similar extremist groups look at this and see a big opportunity. And so ISIS moved in and tried to take over the town of Dabiq because they basically wanted to be there for the end times and the apocalypse. They thought this was the precursor to it. And actually, they did hold that town for quite a while. They have since lost it. And it's, it's really interesting because their ideology and their magazines and things has dropped Dabiq almost entirely since they lost it. They're backpedaling quite rapidly. But that was part of the reason they got into Syria in the first place, is they wanted to be there 
for that battle of the end times. And for a brief period in time, they actually did hold a fair amount of territory. They have since lost most of it. Now, the way that they relate to some of the other elements is they have largely been fighting against the rebels. They saw that as the biggest opportunity, and they have largely left Assad alone. The reason for this is probably a couple-fold, but they saw as long as they stayed away from fighting him and his forces directly, he kind of left them alone as well. And so while this was not any sort of alliance between Assad and ISIS, and they actually disagree on a lot of ideological issues with Assad being Shia and ISIS actually being kind of a spin-off on the Sunni branch, but you had this kind of agreement that we won't fight you if you don't fight us. Now, there is a fourth side to the Syrian conflict as well, and that's the Kurds. Now, two weeks ago, I did a whole episode on who the Kurds are, so if you haven't listened to that, please go back and do so. But basically, the Kurds are the largest ethnic group in the world that doesn't have their own country. And so they have long wanted autonomy in this region. And their people group actually spans across four countries. That's Iraq and Iran, Syria, and Turkey. And they are largely persecuted in all of those countries for various reasons. Uh, They're seen as the minority in all of them. But they would love to carve out their own country, uh, kind of spanning those four, and call it Kurdistan. You may have actually heard of Kurdistan. There is a place in northern Iraq that frequently goes by Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, that's run largely autonomously. Now, there is actually a place in Syria called the Rojava area, which is kind of a de facto autonomous region there as well. It's very similar. Uh, The official name is the DFNS. That's the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. But this Rojava area uh, actually has a lot of different ethnicities, but the Kurds are one of the largest. And they have a segment of that that's often referred to as Western Kurdistan. And so they have largely kind of run that by themselves without a whole lot of oversight from the Syrian government. And so they see the Syrian civil war as an opportunity for them to really push harder for secession, to secede from the country. They saw it as a chance to gain a little bit more land and to really strengthen and solidify that autonomy. Now, the Kurds are largely run on a military front by what's called the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF. Now, this is actually a mixture of Kurds and some Arabs as well. But this group, the SDF, is led by the YPG. Now, the YPG is a Kurdish militia group. YPG actually stands for something in Kurdish. Mostly they're operating out of that northeast quadrant and kind of reaching and trying to expand. Uh, And their ultimate goal is to capture other Kurdish settled territories from the Arab Syrians and to really strengthen the autonomy of that region of Rojava. So those are the four sides at play here. You have Assad and the Syrian government. You have the, the rebels, which are Syrian civilians. You have ISIS, the Islamic State, and you have the Kurdish people. Now, there are a lot of other countries and a lot of other players involved here, and I kind of want to run through who they are and why they're involved as well. First, I'm going to start with the regional actors and kick things off with Iran. So the country of Iran is probably the principal ally of Syria right now. Uh, they are a 12er Shia branch. Remember from last week, Twelverism is the state religion in Iran, and it's also the religion of Bashar al-Assad. So they see an ally religiously in him, but they also see a political ally here because they help fund one of the premier terrorist groups in the area in Hezbollah. Now, Hezbollah is a Lebanese group, but a very large chunk of their funding comes from Iran. And the way Iran helps fund them is through the regime in Syria and Bashar al-Assad, his administration. So this is a really crucial financial ally as a a byway to get to Hezbollah and Lebanon. Now, Syria is probably the only consistent ally that Iran has had since the 1979 revolution. So this friendship is seen as being very crucial, and Iran believes that the survival of the Syrian government and the Syrian way of life uh, under Assad is very crucial to its overall interests. 
Now, Iran has said it's not like they're looking to have Bashar al-Assad remain president for his entire lifespan, but they don't like the idea of toppling him uh, for a variety of reasons as friends, longtime friends and allies religiously. And they see his minority-led government as the Shia Alawite as being really important to help buffer some of the influence of one of Iran's biggest rivals in the region in Saudi Arabia, as well as with the United States too. So Iran has provided a fair amount of support for the government, uh, both financially and through combat troops. They also help with training, a lot of strategic and technical support, and they really have gotten involved here at a level that many other states have not so far. For many of the same reasons, we, we do see Hezbollah as a primary ally in Syria as well. Uh, Hezbollah, as I mentioned, is from Lebanon, and they are one of the few Shia terrorist groups that's in the entire Middle East. Uh, further, Hezbollah is probably the only terrorist group in the world that is currently stronger than the government under which it's run. They are at least equal to, if not stronger, than the Lebanese government itself. And they actually run in elections and have won seats in the Lebanese parliament. But they have started to get involved in Syria because they see Assad as a strategic ally. And because of this kind of thoroughfare relationship they have to Iran through Syria, which provides a lot of their funding. Now, Hezbollah has run into some problems with this. Lebanon is considered one of the more religiously diverse countries in the Middle East. And so they actually have the support of more than just Shia citizens. They actually have some Sunni supporters as well as some other religious supporters too. But because they have kind of allied with Assad, they are actually seen a little bit as being or they've been accused of being Sunni killers because Assad is the Shia attacking Sunni civilians. So they've actually lost a fair amount of support, and it wouldn't be shocking if they start to back off some of their overall support for Syria and Assad because of this. Hezbollah is actually kind of coming to a, a crucial decision here where they're going to have to decide if they are a Lebanese group or if they have some sort of broader global goals. Because if they really want to put Lebanon first and the Lebanese people first, they need probably need to back out of Syria. If they have these kind of broader goals, though, then maybe having this kind of international flair to them may help them long term. But they're kind of coming to that really crucial key decision moment. Now, combined with Iraq, those three countries are three groups, Iran, Iraq, and the Lebanese Hezbollah are probably the three most important regional supporters that you need to know of Assad and the Syrian government. So let's shift gears for a little bit and look at who are supporting the, the rebels on the other side. Largely, these are Sunni countries, but you have a couple key ones to notice. Uh, first, let's start in Turkey. Turkey is a group that is kind of interesting because they're a, they're a NATO ally uh, of the United States and of most of Europe. So they have some Western influence and some Western ties that make them a little bit different from many of the other regional actors. Now, Turkey, because they are also a Kurdish state uh, in the sense that there is a Kurdish region within them that also wants to, to secede and kind of form their own country, they are very anti-Kurds. Uh, there's been, actually been some persecution and some serious conflicts between the main portion of Turkey and the Kurdish region. And as they've seen the Kurds get more and more involved in Syria, they're starting to get concerned that that's going to spill over into Turkey. So one of Turkey's first kind of planned military actions in Syria was actually about attacking the Kurds, which is really interesting because the Kurds were not one of the original members. You know, Turkey kind of entered this on neither the government or the rebel side, but attacking a, a third category. Now, that said, Turkey does tend to come down on the side of the rebels. 
So while they have had a kind of a friendly relationship with Syria over the decade or so prior to this, they have come out quite strongly against Bashar al-Assad and against the government. So they have helped form the Free Syrian Army. Remember a while back I mentioned that the Free Syrian Army was one of the major rebel groups that was put together under some of the supervision of Turkish intelligence. And they have also they have provided the Free Syrian Army with kind of a safe zone, a safe haven for them, a place to base a lot of their operations. And kind of combined with the next two countries I'll touch on, Turkey has helped provide the rebels with arms and other military equipment. But because of their focus against the Kurds, in addition to helping support some of the rebels, they've kind of thrown a bit of a wrench into some of the relationships they have with, say, the United States, who are also involved there. We'll get to them in a minute, because the U.S. is one of the Kurdish allies, one of the main Kurdish allies. Uh, Further, you have Turkey kind of fighting against Iran. Uh, They're not fighting a combat-wise head-to-head right now, but there's this kind of long-term battle going on between Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, who I'll get to in a minute, over what political Islam should look like. And this is actually probably one of the more important proxy conflicts that's taking place in Syria. Most of the time we think about U.S. and Russia as the big proxy players, but the fight for what political Islam looks like is probably a more important one and a more influential one going forward, at least within the region. And this is because you have three three countries that have very different views of what Islam should look like in a political system, the, these kind of Islamist governments. You have a country like Iran, which is a theocracy headed by their religious leaders, and they're very anti-West. And you have this kind of mindset in Iran that they don't want to engage with the West really at all if they can help it. Turkey is a little bit different. Technically, they're a democratic republic. Although, as if you've listened to past episodes, you know that President Erdogan there has kind of been shifting more and more towards dictatorship. But they are more in the democratic model. They're kind of a hybrid regime right now. And they are much more interested in joining the West. Uh, Now, they have pulled away from this more in recent years, probably because they don't believe the EU is ever going to let them join. But they have been really pushing heavily to join groups like the EU and really integrate themselves more with Europe. So you have that type of regime. Now, under Erdogan in the last few years, as I said, they've pulled away from that. But that's kind of going on there. And then the next country is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a monarchy and a theocracy in a sense. Uh, They are ruled by a royal family, one of only a handful or so countries left in the world that do have a monarchy. There are not many, even in the Middle East. You have Jordan, which is the kingdom of Jordan, uh, but there just aren't many countries that are monarchies, but Saudi Arabia is one of them. And so you have this kind of third view of what political Islam could look like, ruled by a king and a royal family. But you also have them kind of interested in in integrating with the West to an extent. Uh, they've, they're still very conservative and puritanical domestically, although we have seen a few moves there with allowing women to drive, reopening movie theaters, and, and things like that. But they're really more interested in, in engaging with the West in trade, uh, especially with their oil. They have a lot of relationships with the West, with the United States even, over their oil and some uh, economic issues. So you have three major players all kind of vying for what they think political Islam should look like going forward, not only for them, but for the entire Middle East for decades to come. Now, let's focus a little bit more on Saudi Arabia, because this is the next big country that's involved in Syria. Uh, And Saudi Arabia is there for a handful of reasons. Uh, They are much more on the nationalist side of things. Uh, They've given a lot of arms and finances to, to rebel groups. 
Now, Saudi Arabia is here for a couple things. Uh, one, as I mentioned earlier, they have this long-standing rivalry with Iran. And so this is probably another one of the really big key proxy conflicts that's taking place in Syria because you have Saudi Arabia on the rebel side and Iran on the government side. Saudi Arabia and Iran have been battling each other for regional hegemony for a long, long time. This rivalry goes back to at least 1979. Uh, and they've actually fought on multiple fronts. They're in Syria. They've been in Lebanon. They're, they're in Yemen right now, the Yemenese civil war. And there's been actually some head-to-head -head stuff between them. Not a whole lot, but there was an attack on the Saudi embassy in Tehran back in 2016. Uh, they There was a, a Shia cleric named Sheikh Namir who Saudi Arabia executed in 2016 as well. He was very popular among the youth and uh, Iran saw that as an attack on, on Shia. And so you have this kind of rivalry between them where one's Sunni, one's Shia, one's more Western, one is very anti-West, at least in terms of engagement with the West. They have this oil and gas exporting rivalry where both of them want to export their oil and make money. And so they've been battling this out for quite some time now. Again, this goes back to at least 1979, so we're talking going on 40 years now. And the two of them are using this conflict to kind of fight their battles for them. Now, Saudi Arabia also has uh, another one that's going on with Qatar. Qatar is actually a fairly similar situation to Saudi Arabia. It's actually one of the other few monarchies left. It's also Sunni. It's also a U.S. ally. It's also in that kind of uh, Wahhabi Salafi mold that you find in Saudi Arabia. But Qatar has been accused of helping finance and embrace terrorist groups, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood or ISIS, Al-Qaeda. And they've kind of caused some harsh feelings between themselves and, and several other countries in the region too, leading to what's been called the Second Arab Cold War, which has been going on since early 2000s, about 2002 or so. And so in 2017, I believe it was June or so, Saudi Arabia cut ties with Qatar entirely. So even though they do have a lot in common, ideologically speaking, the relationships they have to certain extremist groups have caused some hard feelings here. And again, it's not just Saudi Arabia. Qatar has caused this with several other countries. Saudi Arabia was not the only one to cut ties diplomatically with them. But because both of these countries are very, very wealthy, this kind of struggle between two foreign powers that's taking place in Syria has taken on a really crucial element of the war because they're able to fund and drive a lot of the fighting forward. Uh, their financing of the regimes, their control of a lot of media in the Arab world runs through either Qatar or Saudi Arabia. So they're helping shape and influence the narrative that even Western journalists that look at it and try to figure out what, what are going on or Western pundits are usually looking at media that runs through one of those two countries. For instance, uh, think tanks like the Brookings Institute or the Center for Strategic and International Studies are well noted for getting a lot of their stories and, and actually even some funding from these two Gulf regimes, therefore kind of reflecting and utilizing the agenda and narrative that one of these two countries is pushing. So this struggle that's been taking place, kind of longstanding between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, is fueling this war in Syria to an extent that you don't find from a lot of these other countries. So you have Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, the Lebanese Hezbollah. These are all regional actors that believe they have incentive to be involved in Syria and pursuing some of their own interests, whether through the conflict itself or simply using it as a proxy battleground. Now, regional actors are not the only ones that are involved. And I want to touch on two big major actors, the United States and Russia, as to why these two global superpowers see fit to get involved in this little small country's civil war. Uh, Syria is not a very large country, so you kind of have to wonder why does a superpower like the United States or Russia really care? And what are the political implications that might be driving some of our decision making there?
But let's start with Russia. So why is Russia involved in Syria? And this is a question that actually goes back many, many years. Uh, there's a history of close ties between Syria and Russia that goes all the way back to during the Cold War. Syria was actually an ally to the Soviet Union at the time in opposition against the Western powers. And so this political bond actually has been growing there for many years ever since. In the 50s, the Soviet Union spent something like $300 million in Syria. In 1971, the Soviet Union was actually allowed to open a naval base in a town called Tartus, which gave the Soviets uh, a really stable base in the Middle East. This was under a previous president, uh, Hafez al-Assad. And in 1980, Syria and the Soviet Union actually signed a 20-year treaty. So by the time the Syrian civil war rolls around in 2011, Syria has been one of Russia's closest allies in this region, in the Middle East, for many, many decades. Now, the Syrian civil war has been going on, as I said, since 2011 with some of the political unrest. And pretty much since the beginning, the Russians have been considered very close allies. They have supported the government of Syria and Assad ever since the very beginning. And this is actually really important politically because this is the first time Russia has entered into an armed conflict outside the borders of the, the former Soviet Union since the end of the Cold War. So this is their really first excursion past their previous borders, which tells you a little something about how important they view this. Since 2011, Russia has used its platform on the UN Security Council as one of the veto players to block any sort of resolutions by the UN, by the UN Security Council against Assad. And so he's protected Assad with his veto. He's given uh, them weapons through wep weapon sales. And this naval base that I mentioned in Tartus is still there. And it's, it's one of the last remote naval bases for Russia. And it's the only one they have in the Middle East. And it's really a symbol of their global reach that they don't want to give up. It's one of the last vestiges of this empire that they had during the Soviet Union days. And they like having that foothold in the Middle East. And it actually it gives them a port as well, access to the Mediterranean, which is really important for trade. But it's also important as a symbol to the rest of the world that they have reach that goes beyond their immediate vicinity into other parts of the world. Further, they see Assad falling as a potential threat to their interests because it would give the United States potentially a more favorable regime. The United States and Assad do not get along. And as the United States has gotten more influence in the area through Israel and more recently some of its closer ties to Saudi Arabia, Russia has looked at this as a potential threat. And so they are seeking to kind of counter U.S. influence in that region. So Russia has actually stepped in to help Assad and the Syrian government politically and with military aid since 2000. 2011, since the original fighting began, but also since 2015 with direct military involvement. Now, Russia has also gotten involved with some of the other players. Interestingly, they've actually provided some air support and some arms to Turkey and the Syrian Democratic Forces, which if you remember, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces are part of the Kurdish militia groups in fighting ISIS. So they are considered anti rebels, but also anti ISIS. And so they've, they've helped fund certain groups to fight against ISIS. And this has been a point of contention for a while because while they claim to be fighting ISIS for a long, long time, none of their strikes are going anywhere near ISIS territory. Now, they do have these kind of connections to other groups, but whether or not they are actively fighting ISIS there too is a little bit murkier. They claim they have, they've targeted ISIS as well as some other extremist groups like Al-Nusra, like Al but when you look at kind of a map of where their strikes have taken place, the grand majority of them are nowhere near ISIS territory. Now, this support that Russia has for Assad and the Syrian government has continued quite strongly, even though Assad has been accused of 
uh, chemical weapons attacks, which have killed many, many of the Syrian population, to the point where Russia has basically defended them and claimed that they don't believe Assad was involved or that the government forces were involved, and they also helped blame some of the rebels. Further, this relationship with Assad and Syria has basically given Russia a chance to really test out some of the capabilities of its new military. Ever since the fall of the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War, Russia was really knocked back in power quite significantly. But under Putin, they've started to kind of roar back. And one area that he has really poured a lot of money into is in the military and kind of re-expanding the military. And so Syria has become kind of a, a new front or a theater to help test out some of their military equipment and some of their new military strategy. It's giving the military kind of real war experience uh, for confidence sake, to test out some things and to demonstrate the strength of their weaponry and the strength of their military to any future challengers, but also to any potential buyers for their weapons. And Russia probably isn't backing down anytime soon in Syria either, uh, despite the kind of chemical weapons ac accusations. It will be very difficult for Russia to really back off of their support of Syria right now, in particular because uh, they've gotten so involved and they have such a huge stake in what's taking place there for many, many decades, and they want to be seen as a global power again. Again, since the Soviet Union fell, this country has really been seen as a former superpower, not a current one. And so it's important for them to show and flex their muscles here. And one way for them to do that is to kind of face off against the United States, not head to head, but as a proxy conflict. And this is the proxy conflict that people are probably most familiar with. It's very reminiscent of the Cold War era when you had countries like Korea, Vietnam that were theaters for proxy conflicts with the Soviets backing one side, the US backing the other. Syria definitely has that similar ring to it. And so the United States has been kind of a primary adversary for the Russians, even though they don't really face off directly anymore. But this kind of leads directly into the question of, well, why is the United States involved? What's the purpose politically that for the United States' involvement in this area? And truth be told, there's probably several reasons. Primarily, they have claimed that one of the main reasons is to destroy ISIS, to destroy the Islamic State in both Syria and Iraq. But when it comes to further goals and other intentions in the region, it gets a lot murkier, a lot more vague. They have been involved in kind of helping broker some ceasefire issues between the government and the rebels. We have interests in keeping Israel strong in the region and cutting off this line of support through Syria to Hezbollah would be really important in following through on that to help keep Iran from funding Hezbollah directly. So helping keep Israel strong is a particular interest to the United States. They're our strongest ally in the region. There's some he hegemonic issues that play here where the United States wants to be seen as the global superpower. At the end of the Cold War, the United States was the only superpower we were seen as the hegemon. Over time, other countries like China and Russia have arisen. And so we want to try to counter their influence and kind of check their their strength here, restrict them. We want to expel Russia from Syria. That last uh, naval base there is really important. It's the last outpost that Russia has in the Middle East. So if we can get rid of that, it really weakens Russia's involvement and influence in this very key strategic area. Maintaining U.S. power here is also about restricting the influence of the rising Chinese power. China wants access to the region. They're actually working on building something called the Silk Road Initiative or the Belt and Road Initiative. And this is kind of a modern day Silk Road that would run through the Middle East, but also connect China to a lot of other parts of the world, including Africa and, and Europe. And so restricting Chinese influence in the Middle East would also be a pretty important role. Now, China is not super involved in, say, the Syrian conflict, but with the U.S. staying involved there, that helps restrict and limit what China can do down the road. But the vagaries of 
the U.S. involvement here and kind of our reasons for it have shown up in a few areas. Since 2014, we've been involved against ISIS. We've been fighting them. We, we've helped uh, supply some of the rebels of that Free Syrian Army with aid. Not lethal aid, not in terms of like arms or munitions, but like food rations and trucks and those sorts of things. But we've also helped provide uh, training. We've given cash, intelligence to certain very specific rebel commanders. In 2013, the United States actually had a very secret, top secret CIA program that was designed to help fund the rebels. This kind of backfired on us because it was eventually leaked out that we had spent something like $500 million, but had trained a grand total of 60 fighters. That's six zero, not 60,000 or anything like that. $500 million to train 60 fighters. And so that was kind of an embarrassing program because it was originally designed to train something in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 thousand and so the 500 million didn't really go nearly as far as we wanted it to and so that was embarrassing we have started a second program this came about a little bit later uh, it was a billion dollar covert program run by the cia again but that has since been canceled as well we had a 2014 campaign through the pentagon which was designed to specifically arm rebels to fight isis and that was a little bit more successful but ever since 2017 is where we really started to get involved in targeting the syrian government until that point we were clearly pro-rebel or anti-Assad, but we never, we hadn't really stepped in physically. But since 2017, especially with these chemical weapons attacks, we had uh, Trump and the administration here in the United States launching missile attacks, the famous Tomahawk missiles that were fired. And further, the United States does have this interest in the Kurdish people too. Uh, so we are one of the only countries that is siding with both the rebels and the Kurds, as opposed to just the rebels or uh, rebels but anti-Kurds like, say, Turkey is. Uh, so we are fighting actively against ISIS, but for the Kurds, for the rebels, and with these more recent military strikes, we've actually opened up against Assad as well, too. And just a few months ago, the Trump administration claimed that it's intending to maintain a very open military presence in Syria to counter Iran's influence, because because we don't like the fact that Iran has gotten so heavily involved, and to oust Bashar al-Assad. And actually, these chemical weapons attacks have been really key in understanding the U.S. position here because they have provided us a really ironclad reason for going in militarily. This is really important from a symbolic perspective. You had, say, Obama's red line that took place when he was president. He claimed if you cross this line, use chemical weapons, it's not going to be tolerated. They crossed it. Obama did nothing. That was really damaging for U.S. reputation abroad because it was seen as the U.S. backing down from one of their threats, which means that any future comments or threats will not be taken nearly as seriously. So when Assad used chemical weapons again, as we believe he did, that gave the United States another chance to step forward and say, hey, when we really say something like this, we mean it. It's really become important for us as, as a country, but also kind of to the international community to show that we won't stand for the usage of certain types of weapons, like chemical weapons, theoretically biological weapons, any, any sort of WMD because that sends us a signal to potential future adversaries like maybe Iran or North Korea or something else like that, that we don't tolerate this type of fighting. Uh, and so this is something that the Trump administration has really taken to heart. And they really believe quite strongly that it's important to show that strength and to flex our muscles when someone does cross that line, to show that our threats have weight behind them and that our words have meaning behind them. But, you know, I'm just checking the clock now and we are way over on time for what I thought this episode would be today. So I'm going to go ahead and end it there. I do promise we will get into an entire episode on who ISIS is at some point. 
uh, and probably we'll talk about this war more. As I said, we're only in year eight. Most civil wars last 10, and this one is so complicated with the foreign involvement that it's become a kind of a tangled web. And so it's quite likely this will be going on for a long, long time, unfortunately. And the humanitarian crisis here is probably going to just get worse. Again, it's a really tragic scenario. But unfortunately, that's kind of what happens in civil wars. So as things progress and move forward, I promise we'll be talking more about this. I'll probably go into more detail on U.S. involvement at certain points as well. If you have any questions, want me to do an episode specifically on one of these aspects I touched on today, please hit me up. You can always find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Follow me there. Send me questions. Tell me what you want to cover. You can always find me on Facebook as well. I have a fiction author page. I do write mystery novels. Find me there. It's called J. Robert Kinney. That's what I write my fiction novels under. It's a pseudonym of sorts with my middle name. And if you're interested in supporting me with this podcast or advertising on it, please contact me. I would be happy to talk with you about that possibility. But until the next episode, you're listening to Nutshell Politics. I'm Justin Kinney, and I'm off. Yeah.